Hello and welcome to another episode of Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professionals podcast on all things law and tax with me, Rachel Sherlock, and also Gráinne McMahon. Today we are bringing you part two of an interview with Yvonne Daly, Professor of Criminal Law and Evidence at Dublin City University. She is co-author of the new book, Criminal Defence Representation at Garda Stations. In our last episode, we spoke with Yvonne about her experience developing the Superlat training to assist practitioners in navigating the practicalities of representing clients at Garda stations. In today's episode, we're continuing that discussion, diving into the importance of attending at the station and advocating for your clients as early as possible, as well as how to develop an awareness of your clients' needs and vulnerabilities. We hope you enjoy the episode. You carried out a lot of research in this space and you kind of highlight that one of the things that is recurrent is kind of low levels of attendance in Garda stations by solicitors. And, you know, you give many real life examples of various scenarios and the research you found that attending varied depending on solicitor firms. So how important is it that a solicitor attends at a Garda station? Yes, uh, attendance levels are quite low and it's not exactly clear why a bit more research is needed to try to figure that out. Is it that detainees are not asking for lawyers? Uh, is there an issue with the way the right of access to lawyers being explained to them, which, for example, was, was found in research in the UK that that was an issue? Or is it that lawyers are choosing not to attend? It, it's hard to tell, but attendance levels are at about 21% for just having a, a lawyer give advice rather than staying at the interview. And only about 10% of interviewees have their lawyer present with them during the interview. Those figures are based on people who are going through the publicly funded system rather than people paying privately. But it's about 10% if you look at that to have the lawyer present in the interview. So that's quite low. So in the UK, um, you'd have about 50% of people having a lawyer, getting advice from a lawyer, and maybe up to 68% actually one study suggested. So our levels of of, uh, getting access to legal advice in general are quite low. And the Gardaíocon Legal Advice Scheme, which allows for people to have access to a lawyer free of charge, has quite a low threshold. So if you're earning €20,000 a year, Anything more than that, you won't be allowed to have a solicitor paid for in attendance at the station. You'll have to pay for it privately. So I think that threshold is quite low. Whereas in the UK, it doesn't matter what your financial situation is. You can have access to the duty solicitor scheme, no matter what your financial situation is. Now, we advocate for attendance at the station in all cases, not just giving telephone legal advice. And we think that that's really important, partly because it's very difficult to assess your client's needs over the phone. Um, and we have a chapter on the book dealing in particular with clients with additional needs or particularly vulnerable clients who have, let's say, mental health issues or addiction issues or maybe intellectual disabilities and so on. And in a phone call between a client and their solicitor, the client calling from the station, you really won't be in a position to assess properly whether your client has any of those additional needs. That's the type of thing that can really only be assessed in person. Also, telephones in the station are not always in a very private spot, so it's not very uh, easy to speak confidentially to um, a client or to be sure that your your discussion is in confidence. So it can be difficult to really give full legal advice to somebody. And the other thing, and this is some of the, you know, came back to us in the interviews we did with the solicitors in relation to attending at the interview, for example. Uh, Solicitors were saying that previously when they weren't allowed to attend the interview, 
you know, the suspect would come out of the interview, maybe meet with their solicitor again. The solicitor would ask, you know, what happened, what was discussed in the interview. And this wouldn't get a very full account from the client as to what had been discussed. You know, I, I think it's like when you go to the doctor and, you know, you come out and, you know, in general, they said you've got like the flu or something. But any of the finer details of what they discussed with you or what exactly they asked you or how many times you're supposed to take the medicine, you know, you've kind of lost that information by the time you get home to recount it to anybody else. So the lawyers felt that being present in the interview really made a big difference to how they understood the case and how the case was developing and helping the lawyer to think ahead. What's the likely next step? How can I properly advise the client what to do here? So there's there's two things, I suppose. There's the need to attend the station in order to be able to properly discuss the case with your client and assess your client's needs. And then there's the need to attend the interview. Um, and I, I think that that's really important as well. And we go through, you know, some of the reasons why lawyers choose to attend or not and why we think it's really important to attend. But yes, yeah, so the, the, the other issue, again, is sort of building rapport, building trust with your client. Some of that can really help. Being in the interview really helps with that as well. Um, and we had a solicitor, I remember saying that, you know, it's like any big event in your life. If you, It's good to have someone to share it with, to be able to say, remember when this happened. And the clients can be very reassured when they come out of the interview with their lawyer. And the lawyer says to them, you know, you did OK there. That was fine. You know, that, that was a difficult thing and, and you're doing OK. But that can really, you know, reassure the client and, and help them to um, follow through on what it is they want to do uh, within the interview. So you think that attendance at the interview is really important as well as just attending at the station in general. I think that comparison to being in a doctor's office, like that's something that really resonates even with me. So that it's very clarifying in that way. And I can see from what you're saying that this is so much more, it's almost a heightened level of importance when you're dealing with vulnerable clients. So the book gives great advice in this area and guidance. So if there are any maybe tips that you have here that you can suggest? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people in guard custody are likely to have additional vulnerabilities. As I said already, I think anyone is vulnerable in the guard station. I personally would hate to be arrested and detained in a guard station. Uh, the guard inspector's report from a year or two ago gave really interesting insight into sort of the the uh, what guard stations are like, you know, what, what cells in guard stations are like with Sometimes, you know, uh, the toilet is is in the floor, it's flushed from the outside, you don't have control over it. And this is where you're waiting before you go in for an interview, which could be one of the most important things that ever happens in your life. So it's just a really difficult position for anyone to find themselves in. And I think that that's true, whether the person is guilty or not guilty of the offence that they're suspected of as well. You know, and sometimes, and I think it's important to say, sometimes the lawyer's best advice to the person will be, you know, you need to admit what you've done and start to think about mitigation rather than necessarily, you know, not answering any question no matter what. Um, but to go back to vulnerability, yes, yeah, certainly a lot of the people who, who find themselves in guarded custody have additional issues or additional conditions maybe. Um, and in the book, we do look at some of those. Uh, we look, for example, at substance use and addiction issues, look at various disabilities, including mental illness, neurodiversity and intellectual disabilities, Uh, We also look at physical and sensory disabilities, uh, issues around ethnicity and sexuality and so on as well are are all covered in the book. And I suppose from a a lawyer's perspective, it's just important to have all of this on the top of your head. You know, when you come into the station that you're assessing your client's ability, what what they are going to be able for in the interview and, and 
how they're coping with custody and whether they need particular additional supports as compared to what somebody else might need, whether you need to ask a member in charge to arrange for a medical assessment. Again, the Guardian Spectrus report pointed out that responsible adults are not very often being used for adult suspects with additional vulnerabilities. And it is possible to use responsible adults under the custody regulations in that context, but that's not really happening. Sometimes it's it's difficult for the lawyer to know what to do. Um, and we're not by any means suggesting that the lawyer needs to be able to diagnose a particular issue that a person has, but it's just important to have an awareness. And I think that that's what the book maybe helps people to do is have an awareness of the types of issues which might crop up to be able to spot those and to consider what impact those are likely to be having on the person while they're in custody or while they're being interviewed. And some of it might just be, again, requiring the lawyer to communicate with their client in a different way, to adapt their language, to speak to the person in a in a clearer way, or you know, if, if they feel that the person has a kind of intellectual disability or something, that they adjust how, their, how they explain difficult legal concepts to the person. It could be that they need to suggest to the guardian that the person is not fit to be interviewed, and there's a particular process in terms of determining whether somebody is fit to be interviewed or not. And and again, attendance is so important here, so that the the Someone could be quite convincing on the phone and sound like they're going to be fine, you know, and go ahead. Sometimes the advice that lawyers give is go ahead, do the first interview yourself and I'll come later. But you just might miss something really important there. You know, the person could be just really suggestible and they're likely to just agree to whatever is said to them. And there's lots of um, study uh, studies by Gidley Good Johnson and others in relation to suggestibility. And people with particular conditions may be more suggestible than others. Some may be more compliant than others. They'll just, you know, go along with whatever is happening. So you could have a great, even if you go in person, you could have a great consultation with a client and they say, oh, I'm going to go no comment. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. That's no problem at all. And then they go into the interview and they're saying yes, no. And, you know, it's agreeing with whatever the guardie are saying as well in the same way that they agreed whatever the lawyer suggested in the consultation. So these can be really difficult things. For lawyers to spot and I think what we're trying to say in the book is just to be aware of these issues and aware of the impact that they may have on the client and, and to know what you can do about it sometimes the most you can do is to ask for a note to be put in the custody record that you're concerned about this person and their vulnerability and so on it's something that could be referred back to later. I get a real sense Yvonne that you're talking so much about getting into the process as early as possible that it's really important to kind of begin this this mentality of advocating for your client as early as possible. And so maybe can we go back all the way to the the initial phone call? Because I know the book talks about the initial phone call and, and contains a few checklists in relation to this. And so I thought maybe we could discuss that. Yeah, as I say, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I sort of in my head, I always picture the lawyer going through the station and, you know, interacting with different people. And that's kind of how we've tried to structure the book as well as going from beginning to end to some extent. And, you know, how you interact with people along the way and, and the different issues that come up. And um, so, yeah, we, we've a number of checklists in the book. And the first one is about the questions a lawyer might want to ask the member in charge on, on an initial call. Uh, so, you know, the, the information may, can come to a lawyer that they're to be engaged in a particular case in different ways. Most often it'll be a call from the member in charge at the station to say that a particular client is asking for you to attend. You could get a call from a family member of the detainee, either um, more usually be from the member in charge. And I suppose there's a couple of questions and, and I say we have a checklist in the book 
you know, sort of general details around the suspect, their name and address, their whether any risk assessment has been carried out in relation to them. You know, and again, this is important at the very earliest stages. And this is obviously it's a duty on the Gardaí as well to carry out a risk assessment. And they're obviously needing to look out for the human rights of, of people in detention with them as well. Just checking in on that, you know, checking is, is this a child or is it an adult? Um, has the doctor been called? Do we need a responsible adult? All of that. And then getting the details of the Gardaí involved in the case and who's investigating it and uh, whether contact can be made with, with the investigating officer to get some more details um, asking, you know, about the reason for the arrest and the circumstance of the arrest, trying to sort of get a picture of what's happened so far before the call has come. So, you know, how, what was the reason for detention? What was the time of detention? When did they arrive at the station and so on? Have there been any interviews conducted so far? Uh, when did the person ask for access to a lawyer and so on? And then it's important to not to leave things open-ended, you know, to make it clear what the action is going to be. So explaining to member in charge when you're going to be able to attend at the station, you know, requesting maybe that no other interviews should happen until you've attended, making sure that you're happy with how everything has uh, happened so far, and, and maybe trying to arrange to speak to the investigating member just to get some more information. And so I think those are the initial things, and I'd say hopefully the checklists are useful. That's one of the sort of structures from Ed Cape's book that we were able to borrow a little bit, this idea of checklists, because again, solicitors, we're in the middle of something else, and you get a call from the station, it's handy just to be able to pick up this checklist and say, well, these are the, these are the things I need to find out. Yeah, the checklists, I think, are fantastic. And then there's another checklist that you have in the book, which I was hoping you kind of could briefly talk us through, which is when you actually get to the station, things that you need to consider and information that you might need to seek yeah, again, it's some of the same things maybe from the initial call, just checking out, you know, the suspect's name and address, the grounds and the reasons for arrest. Um, and that's not just to be told, you know, he's been arrested under Section 4 on suspicion of burglary or something. You know, you want the actual details of what what is the basis on which this arrest has happened? What is the evidence that existed in order to ground the arrest? Obviously, checking again if, if it's a, a child client or otherwise, what time did the client ask for access to a lawyer? And if there's been any significant lapse in time there, trying to figure out why, why that has been. Uh, asking if there's any property found on the suspect, for example, and whether that is evidence. Again, discussing the Garda risk assessment and if risks have been identified, what follow-up action have the Garda taken in relation to that? Um, has the doctor been called? And if so, have they made certain recommendations and what's happening in relation to those? You know, checking on the client's well-being in terms of any addiction issues, on whether they are fit to be questioned in terms of that, whether there's been a property search. I suppose asking things like, you know, has a suspect been asked to sign the guard's notebook, for example, or anything else of that nature? Again, whether any interviews have been conducted and asking maybe about fingerprinting and um, DNA testing, that sort of thing. And also if there's any information about previous convictions. So I guess it's just trying to get a full picture of what's happened before you've gotten there and what actually is the reason that this person has been arrested and I think it's important to to ask those questions you can then speak to your client to get their version of events but it's good to just be clear on the guard a picture of things um, at that stage when you've arrived at the station and when it comes to the consultation the book guides you through this part of it as well I presume yeah the consultation is a big part of it because it's really important if you have a good consultation with your client things will run more smoothly from there in terms of the interview and you know the whole detention going forward 
So we've already, you know, early in the book, we discussed communication skills in general and we discuss address and the role of the lawyer. And then we have a particular chapter on consultation where we sort of try to apply all of that specifically in the context of the consultation. And we also have a checklist in relation to the consultation, which I might run through maybe uh, some of that uh, just to give a sense of uh, what a lawyer is trying to do in the consultation. And again, I think it's important for the lawyer to calm everything down a little bit, you know, to park anything they've been dealing with earlier in the day. And, and I really feel like a lawyer can bring an air of calm to a station where the tension can be quite high. And even just through tone of voice, speaking in a relatively slow manner, instead of, you know, arriving into the consultation and saying, I'm Yvonne Daly, I'm your sister, I'm here to tell you you've been arrested under section four, blah, blah, blah. You know, you've got to sort of bring things down a little bit, introduce yourself if, if you haven't represented this client before, or even if you had, you know, take a few minutes to build a bit of rapport because the more rapport there is, the more the client will trust you. And if they trust you, you know, the more likely they're going to listen to your advice and uh, and and come to you and, you know, share their concerns and so on with you, that you're really going to be able to be a help to them if you've built that level of rapport. So, you know, on the training, we, we sometimes talk about, do you shake hands with the person? Do you introduce yourself by your first name or with your surname? You know, just to think about things like that, about the first impression that you make to the client. And clients can sometimes be concerned as well that, um, especially if they haven't dealt with you before, that you've been called by the guards and that you're not independent. And it's important maybe to take the time to explain how all of that works and how you are there on their behalf. And although the guards might be the ones who called you, you're not working for them, you're independent and so on. Um, so explaining who you are um, and what your role is in the process, maybe giving them an outline of what the consultation is going to be so that they sort of can recognize that as it's going along. Um, you might need to discuss legal aid issues with them just to make sure that they're eligible to under the scheme. And that can be a little bit tricky, maybe if, if some of that's unclear, but important to be to be upfront, I suppose, about all of that. And then, you know, maybe just checking if they're OK, have they had something to eat? Is there any medications they normally take? Do they need access to the doctor? You know, how have things gone so far with the guardie? Is, is everything OK? Are they worried about anything outside of the station? You know, I mentioned the example of kids that they need to pick up or maybe they're missing work and they don't want to work to know why they're missing it, but they do want to send some sort of explanation. All those sorts of things which might be stopping them from thinking clearly about what's happening right now. So just sort of bringing everything down a little bit and, and trying to deal with those concerns then maybe asking for some background details. And while you're doing all of this, I think the solicitor also needs to be, you're sort of assessing the person's capabilities and their, maybe their educational background and so on as part of your overall assessment of the client, you know, in asking them, some solicitors gave the example of maybe asking them, when did they finish school? Did they, did they leave at a relatively young age? And a lot of a lot of people who find themselves in guard of custody would have a background like that. And may also have suffered what are called adverse childhood experiences um, and maybe suffering still the trauma of that. And being in detention can really exacerbate that for people and, and activate their fight or flight sort of response. So, again, it's helpful to try to, in the consultation, get a sense of that and, and try to help the person to be really present in the moment. So, yeah, then then I guess you can um, discuss the charges and the, the, how long they're going to be detained for and so on. You could tell them what information you have from the police and ask for their account of events. Now, in the training, we suggested to lawyers and in the book, we suggest as well that they ask open questions to really try to get the person to tell their own story. Lawyers are sometimes a little bit concerned about this, that they might hear things that they can't unhear. But our view is that you need to have the client's story so that you can advise them properly. 
If they tell you that they're guilty of the offence, then possibly the best advice is that they should put some of that on, on record. You can still advocate a no comment approach. Uh, there's no ethical problem with that. The only thing you can't do if someone tells you they're guilty is assert that they're not guilty. So having their full story can actually help you to give the best advice possible to them in terms of advising them what would be better to put some of that on account. And uh, this was something interesting from discussions with lawyers as well. Sometimes the clients don't recognize which part of the story is really important to get on account. If there is something which uh, reduces really their responsibility for the offense, they might accidentally leave that out. And that could be one of the most important things. So helping the client to tell their story accurately to the guardie can actually sometimes be the best advice. What else in the first consultation? I suppose giving the legal advice, obviously, and trying to help the person to understand that legal advice in terms of communicating it in an adapted manner that will help them to understand, explain to them what's likely to happen in the interview. And if you're going to be there, what your role will be, trying to prepare them for the interview as well. And just two things I'd say there as well. You need to try to make sure the person has actually understood you And it's not really enough to say, do you understand? And just have them say yes. It's usually a better approach to try to ask the person to explain back to you what they've understood, because then you can check if if they've really got it or not, if they're maybe missing some parts of the advice that you had given. And if a person has decided that they don't want to answer questions in the guard interview, it can sometimes be helpful to role play that a little bit, because it's quite an unnatural thing to say no comment or to just leave a question hang in the air in silence. So some solicitors we spoke to said that in consultations, they do conduct a little role play where they say, okay, you've decided you're not going to answer questions. So let's try that, you know, and say to them, is your bedroom the one at the top of the stairs in your parents' house? And have them actually say no comment because we're just not used to to doing that in, in normal everyday discussions. So there's actually quite a lot to do in the consultation. I don't know how Dutch colleagues manage all of that in 15 minutes. And it can the time that's available here can vary, but solicitors didn't really report any major pressure being put on them to wrap up consultations, particularly in, in complex cases. If you're dealing with really serious offences with a number of different avenues of concern and so on that need to be discussed, it seems to be working OK as things stand. And you, you've already gone a little bit into the experience of the first interview, like you said, role playing it in the consultation. Uh, do you have any high level advice then from going from that consultation into the first interview? Yeah, again, look, I think it's really important if the lawyer can at all attend uh, that they should do. A lot of the time the advice is to not answer questions in that first interview. There is an issue with disclosure. The guardie don't tend to like to give too much disclosure in advance of interviews. They're looking for spontaneous responses Um, And it's part of their training for their interview model to give only a limited amount of disclosure in advance of interview. And so if the person doesn't answer questions in the first interview, it can be an opportunity to get a sense of what the Garda case is as the Garda questions sort of tend to reveal what's being what they're thinking from their perspective and maybe some of the evidence that they have. So in the book, we look at the Garda interview model and explain that approach so that lawyers have an understanding of that. And we think in general, look, it's really important for lawyers and guardie to understand one another's position. Uh, Everyone is working together within the system. Everyone is doing their professional best. And it's important for them to understand uh, one another's perspective. I suppose the role of the lawyer at the interview is to to fulfill the client's instructions. So if the client's instructions are that they don't want to answer any questions, the lawyer is there to support them in doing that. If the client's instructions are that they want to answer certain questions and not others, or provide certain information, again, as they say, it can be important that the solicitor helps them to do that and to make sure that the important points from a legal perspective 
do get uh, get put on on record accurately. The lawyer can intervene if if unfair questions are being asked or repetitive questions and so on. And we, you know, in the book really emphasize the importance of doing that in a respectful manner in order to be effective. Because again, what you're trying to do is to protect your client's interests, defend your client's rights and so on. Um, And so, you know, there's different ways of making interventions, but it doesn't have to be an aggressive intervention that creates a difficult dynamic in the room because that can actually be really counterproductive. And particularly, uh, solicitors mentioned this to us, for clients who have a history of trauma or have grown up in uh, households where there was abuse and violence and so on, a negative atmosphere in the room can be very unsettling for them. So uh, some solicitors suggested to us that when they make interventions, they're very conscious that they're on camera and making that intervention and they try to use the same sort of tone and language that they would use in court because there's a possibility that this video might someday be played uh, in court. And so in making those interventions, we go through all of that in the book. And then taking notes, as I mentioned before, is another important role of the lawyer during the interview. Uh, And and we've heard from solicitors that 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 has been significant on occasion. There was an example of someone who um, had said that they had been on a particular street and then later on, they were said that they hadn't said that they were on that street, but a note was taken that they were, and the, the solicitor was able to point back to a particular place in the interview where they had mentioned being on the street. So, you know, it, it can be being present and again, being really engaged and not daydreaming about something else, but really following what's happening in the interview, keeping an eye on your client that they're doing okay. And being there, if, if they want to take a break, that they can ask for a consultation and meet with you for a couple of minutes, you know, could be really reassuring for them, the fact that you're there and available. Um, and so I think it's a really important role. And we've heard that as well. Again, solicitors have recounted to us that clients have told them the interview was totally different when you were there. I felt totally different. So, yeah, it's, it's really important. Yvonne, I just think so much of that is amazing to hear in terms of it, it's going to be so useful for criminal law practitioners to delve into this book. We didn't get to really delve into how to effectively communicate with your client and guidance on children, but that's dealt within the book. But finally, on a final question here before we go to the light roundup with Rachel, when it comes to the right to silence, one question that solicitors may wonder is, should they advise their clients to say no comment? Is that always appropriate? And I know you deal with that in the book. Yeah, yeah, there's a chapter on in the book which largely uh, draws from that Emprise project that I was involved in. And Really, again, it's the client-centered nature of what we're advocating for is that no comment is not always the best approach. Some suspects will want to get things off their chest and will want to admit a particular level of involvement in an offense. And in that context, if that's their instructions, the lawyer needs to help them to do that in as effective a manner as possible. There are particular drug-related offenses where uh, mitigation is very important to begin at an early stage. Um, lawyers have told us that particularly where they're dealing with an allegation of sexual offence and the defence's consent, it can be very important to put that on record as soon as possible as well. So there's all sorts of factors that need to be taken into account when that advice on silence is being considered. And of course, it gets trickier when you get as far as the inference interviews, which in Ireland tend to happen at the end of the process, whereas in, in the UK, the inferences are always in play in the interviews. Uh, But in Ireland, they happen as a separate set of interviews and there's particular rules. um, Well, there's particular procedures around um, disclosure under the Garda Code 
relating to those in, inference interviews. And so we have a whole section on that in the book as well around adverse inferences and how they play out, the, the importance or otherwise of those inferences in the prosecution case and their impact at trial and so on, and, and whether clients really understand the advice around those which is a kind of an open question to some extent because they're so complicated and difficult to understand, difficult to explain. And I know some lawyers that we spoke to have uh, concerns around the way in which they're explained by the Gardaí. The Gardaí have a particular script that they use to explain them uh, and the lawyers that we spoke to have some concerns around that. So I think the, the sort of short answer is that no comment is not always the best response. And we actually, we delivered a version of the Superlat training in Scotland at one point, and there was a big discussion in that group around whether it's better to advise the person to say no comment or just to allow the silence. And uh, so that, that was an interesting discussion. And uh, one lawyer in Scotland felt very strongly that it was better just to have them say nothing at all. And that even in saying no comment, they might suddenly hear their voice in the room and then they might like to hear more of their voice, uh, though they actually didn't want to say anything so that it might be better. But you know, just leaving the silence hang in the air is so unnatural as well that a lot of people aren't really able for that and saying no comment breaks that. So, you know, there's a huge psychology around all of this um, as well. But uh, and the right to silence is a really interesting aspect of it, I think. Thank you so much. It's been so interesting to hear you speak about all of the work that you've been doing and, and the great work that's gone into the book. And so just to round up our conversation, as Gronya mentioned, we're going to have our, our lighter questions. So to begin with, uh, number one, what book are you currently reading? Now, I don't really read a huge amount. I think it's because I read so much for work during the day that um, reading for pleasure doesn't feel as pleasurable as it, as it used to do. But over Christmas, I read, it's the first book in a series of uh, the Inspector Gamache stories by Louise Penny. The first one is called Still Life. I heard her on the radio just before Christmas talking about this series of books. Uh, and so I bought the first one with great plans to read. I think there's about 14 of them. But so I've, I've made it through the first one after about like two months of reading, which is a reflection on me, not on, on Louise Penny, because I, I actually thought it was really, really good. And I got a copy for my mom as well, who is an avid reader. And I think she's probably read all 14 of them by now. But um, it's, uh, yeah, it's really good. I really enjoyed it, I have to say. It was was nice. It's a gentle sort of book in its own way. That's fantastic. And so would would you have, like, my second question then is, would you have a favourite book? I, I knew you would ask this and I was thinking about it. I don't really have a favourite book. So I'm just going to advocate in general for Marion Keyes who I always enjoy her books. They're nice and light and they're very true to life. And you can see yourself and your friends and your family reflected in them. Um, I think the last one I read was the sequel um, to Rachel's Holiday. It's called Again, Rachel. And uh, there was another one she wrote called Grown Ups, which I quite enjoyed as well. So um, yeah, I I can't pick a a favourite book of all time. I also tend to forget books very quickly. So I could could, uh, happily reread a book and think I hadn't read it before. But yeah, Marion Keys in general, I vote for her. Fantastic. And so then my next question is, three things you would bring to a desert island? Are you allowed to say like that you could bring your husband and your two daughters? Are those three things? <laughs> I have other um, things. I was thinking that I like if I could load up a device with podcast episodes, I, I really do enjoy podcasts. I like an Australian true crime podcast. Like in general, there's lots of them. Um, I also enjoy Irish Current Affairs uh, podcasts. And um, so, that is, so I could load up my phone maybe with podcasts and I'd happily sit on a desert island listening to those. I would need to bring insect repellent because I react very badly to mosquito bites. 
And oh, I think I bring like a blanket. I'm presuming it's a kind of a sunny desert island, but that can get quite cold at night. And I absolutely hate being any tiny bit cold. So I would bring a blanket. Fantastic. What do you like to do outside of work? Uh, I have two little girls, so we're we're pretty busy. I mean, they're 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 growing up, so it's not as bad as it used to be. They're seven and nine now, so still quite busy just on the mammy front. Um, but I have joined. There's a local Gaelic for mothers and others group here, or what we usually refer to as Ga for Maz. So I do Ga for Maz on a on a Thursday night uh, here in my local area, and it's it's great fun. Our skill level is not high, but our fun level is very high. That sounds wonderful. I love it. And then finally, if you weren't working in the legal space, what other career do you think you would have pursued? Um, my parents were primary school teachers. So I would have thought about being a primary school teacher until transition year when I did work experience with a barrister and I decided that I'd prefer uh, to go down the legal route. I'm actually not sure I'd have the patience to be a primary school teacher. I also have a kind of a fantasy job. Like I really would have loved to star in the West End, you know, to be a West End. I love musicals and that kind of thing. But it would require like more musical talent than I have. <laughs> so it's a fantasy uh, extra uh, alternative career. But um, I really would have loved to do that if I could have danced a bit better and sung a bit better. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Yvonne. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Obiter Dicta. You can purchase your copy of Criminal Defence Representation at Garda Stations on bloomsburyprofessional.com. It is also available on our Irish Criminal Law online service. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>